As a surfer who spends a life in the ocean, sensing the changes of weather as a signal to either a great day or an epic day, subtle shifts in weather patterns which pass most of us by become glaringly obvious. It's no surprise that environmental activism around Australia's coastlines is often led by surfers. Sean Doherty is one such person, a legend of Australian surfing journalism. He's taken the gloves off and he's harnessed all of his powers to fight for the ocean. And what he's uncovered about the nefarious shit that our Australian government is trying to get away with in the name of profit for fossil fuel companies, look, it'll curl your toes. Hold on, my friends. Sean Doherty is my podcast guest this week. He's an absolute powerhouse, and I can't wait for you to hear it. But first, to keep the lights on here at Better Than Yesterday, we do need to play some ads. So if you would like a show without ads, I can tell you how that'll happen later on. Uh, but until then, we have to pay Andy and Rachel and Bree and Toehider. So you're going to hopefully not hear ads, but you might hear some ads if you do thank you. And then you'll hear Sean say some cool shit. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Dude, there's a re- like there's a reckoning coming. You know, there's an environmental one and there's an economic one. And it's, it's all a result of the short-sightedness of what's going on right now. No one's got a plan for down the track. And the frustrating thing for people like you and me and people who look at it closely is, man, it's the opportunity of what you could be is, is what's being lost. You know, fuck, you've got the, this, the most beautiful corner of the world here. You've got all these, th- these natural assets. You've got the Indigenous connection to it, all this stuff that's just not even utilised. It's not even in the conversation. You talk energy and the and you get that phrase that we could be the Saudi Arabia of renewable energy. And it, it's actually starting to head that way. No, no thanks to the government, but the market's pushing it. But there's all this stuff that could happen and it, it's just not and it's frustrating. That is author, activist and surfing journalism legend, Sean Doherty. And this is Better Than Yesterday.
G'day, welcome to Better Than Yesterday. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Thank you so much for being here. This is a podcast that is just here to help you make today better than yesterday. How? By having conversations with leading minds from around Australia and around the world to bring new thoughts, fresh ideas to you that hopefully, I guess, maybe plug the gaps in your newsfeed, uh, fill in the bits that we didn't get in school, and generally leave you feeling better than yesterday. Yeah, even when it comes to something as potentially grim as the inaction of successive Australian governments when it comes to climate resilience and climate adaptation, this show, this show today, this episode will leave you feeling better than yesterday. Every show comes with that guarantee. I've been here since 2013. Uh, Three times a week, I'm here, Mondays and Wednesdays and Fridays. Mondays and Wednesdays, I'm here with a guest. Fridays, I'm here with you. Who am I? I'm Osher Ginsberg. I'm a TV host. I'm a podcaster. I'm an author. I'm a dad. I'm a stepdad. I'm, I'm someone who who lives and works and, and likes to think does a pretty okay job with a different brain. I live with OCD and I live with general anxiety, but surprise, surprise, who knew? With great doctors, great meds and taking my role in my treatment seriously, yeah, life's okay right now, even as <laughs> uneasy and unpredictable as it is, life's kind of okay. Thanks for all the messages at send Osher email at gmail.com. Really appreciate that. And massive love to the Facebook group, which, look, started just with, a, I don't know, a couple hundred people uh, ages ago. It's now in the thousands. So if you want to be a part of people who enjoy listening to the show every week, um, there's a fantastic community there. Thank you all being there. Uh, thank you for being there mostly for each other, which is really quite lovely. There is an ad-free version of this show. Uh, there are also full video episodes of this show. I'll let you know how you can access those later on as we go along. But let's get to the chat, yeah? Let me tell you about my guest today. Sean Doherty is a native of Foster on the New South Wales North Coast, and he is a legend of Australian surf journalism. He's written about surfing for over 25 years. He was editor of Tracks magazine for 10 years, a senior writer at both Surfing World and Surfer magazines. He's the author of best-selling surfing biographies and the producer of several award-winning surf and conservation films. Sean lives between Bells Beach and Byron Bay. He's also Patagonia Australia's head of brand engagement and the national chairperson for the Surfrider Foundation. He's a fantastic human being. In the time I've known Sean, he's always been outspoken around the need for fairness and justice, particularly when it comes to how our economy and our way of living is affecting our oceans. In recent years, man, Sean has Sean's taken the gloves off. He's not only done that, he's pulled the tire iron from out the boot and he's coming in swinging when it comes to calling out the hypocrisy and corruption, which is standing between us as a country and meaningful climate action, which might just limit how completely we fuck up the environment that we rely upon to survive. He's always based in facts, which can be confronting if you've never thought to question what certain news organisations choose to publish in relation to reality. Uh, For just a taste, you can find Sean on Instagram. He's Seano888, S-E-A-N-O, the number 888. And his longer writing is at surfingworld.com.au. By the time you're listening to this, there may well have been an election called in Australia. So now, right now, it's important to think about who you're voting for and what they will vote for, and importantly, what party lines will dictate what they vote for when it comes to a viable economy, a secure country, and a livable environment as the weather changes and gets more extreme around us, as we are seeing 
every day. We are the last generation that has the power to do something. So come election day, make sure you do something, something that will allow you to look your kids in the eye in 20 years. Strap in. This is a good one. This is Sean Doherty. It's good to see you, Sean. Always, Osha. How are you, mate? I'm okay. Bit hot at the moment. We're in the middle of some weird subtropical kind of thunderstorm rain event down here in Victoria, which you don't get in summer very often. No. No, well, I I think we might touch on that. (laughs) (laughs) Funny you mention it. Funny you mention that, Sean. It's kind of why we're part of why we're chatting today. I'm really grateful to have you on, mate. It's so it's nice to see you again. I was trying to think of the first time that we met. It, I reckon it might have been like 20 years ago. Yep. I can tell you. Um, we didn't meet in person. I was, this was when I was working at Tracks Surf Magazine, and I got a phone call out of the blue one day from you. And you and I didn't know each other at this point. Um, and you were in Dublin for reasons unknown to me. Oh, um, yeah. And you called me because you just read the Michael Peterson book. You were in the middle of reading. You are in an airport lounge somewhere and, and you, you called me. And it wasn't on my bingo card for that day because um, this is the middle of Australian Idol for you yeah. you know, at that point, I think, and, and that was kind of pretty big news. And, um, and there you go. And we had a chat about that because I think, you know, from memory of the discussion, there was a lot of it was around schizophrenia and which, which Michael had, which, you know, that, that was a huge learning exercise for me and I think you were kind of taking a bit of that on as well and um, – but there you go, mate. Our worlds, uh, our worlds came together. You grew up in in, in Foster, uh, which is uh, north of uh, Sydney, south of Byron. For people who have never been near Foster, can you describe what that coastline is like? What's there? Uh, yeah. Well, you know, for us, it's God's country. It still is these days. I was back there over Christmas for the first time in a while. My brother's back in town these days. Um, but it's just – it's – Really the first place north of Newcastle with Seal Rocks is really, but then that's a whole stretch of coast um, where you get clear water. There's no big kind of bodies of water running out. So you get this really clean green water. You've got white champagne sand. It's just, and, and you've just got miles of coast and a lot of, it, a lot of it's untouched. You know, Foster was a small fishing town back in those days. Um, so we lived 50 metres from the beach. We lived 100 metres from a national park and that was the, that was the playground. It was always only ever going to be surfing. Was it your folks who got you into it? Uh, yeah, well, kind of. There was, it was a very small club in town of, of crew who didn't surf, uh, put it that way. Um, but, yeah, we just surfed and fished. That's what we did. You know, the whole town did that. Um, really, there wasn't, wasn't a lot of other options. Um, it was a really small place at, at that point in time. But it's just so beautiful and it's right there. Man, it's in front of you. It's like, like, what are you going to do? You've got perfect surf sitting there, like, you know, 100 yards away. You're going you're gonna to be a surfer. At the time that you were, you were growing up, uh, you know, school or surf, which one? Uh, I was quite studious. Um, so <laughs> it was an ongoing tension. Don't worry about that. And I went to school in Taree, which is <clears throat> was called Conniewackers at the time, the Catholic school in Taree, so which was an hour away. So we'd we'd have to bus to Taree and bus back, which cut into your surfing time, you know, <laughs> hugely. Yeah. But but yeah, you know, I, I kind of balanced it out, and 
and and did well at school and and still managed you know two surfs a day pretty much every day um till i left that's pretty fantastic mm. at, at what point did you start to think about um what was going to happen after school growing up in, in foster you know you, you can't really be what you can't see and at a time before the internet you've really got magazines and whatever the tv is showing you that like is a possibility for what's next when did you start thinking about what might happen well because my marks were so good and it's weird because it career-wise i had no idea what i wanted to be you know coming out of there and you're right because it's it's a small town i think i think when you're in metropolitan areas and you're surrounded by more you know st- academic structure and 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 different kind of walks of life and you're in amongst it all you you kind of see a lot of it but but with us, we did. My dad was a fisherman. You know, I left school. I had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, I got into medicine, which, which this is the fork in the road story because I had, you know, I, it turns out I got the marks, but you had to sit a day-long aptitude test at Newcastle Uni. Newcastle Uni, and it still does to this day, has the best um, medical degree in the country. So I got into it, but they had a, it was a full-day aptitude test. You had to <clears throat> sit in this big hall at Newcastle Uni and, and do the test. And I got down there, I drove down, it's, you know, a couple of hours south, um, put my board in the car, of course, and and they had a break in the middle of the day. I went, sweet, I'm straight down here, straight for a surf, not realising, of course, the the um, the university's at the back of Newcastle and it's away from the coast. So I pegged it down, got to the, got to the surf, started surfing, waves are pretty good, kind of realised, I, I knew in the back of my head, I go, man, time's getting away here. And and then I kind of just had this, you know, realisation. I sat there and thought about it and gone, you know what? I don't want to be a doctor anyway. <laughs> Why not? I hate blood. I hate the sight of blood. I've got an aversion to it. And, and I just, you know, I, and I've been fighting ever since my whole life to avoid kind of meaningful employment and meaningful jobs, you know, like all, you know, um, stuff that you're supposed to fall into. Uh, and that, that to me felt like a job. I was supposed to do um, as opposed to one I really wanted to do. And so I just, uh, and I stayed out in the surf, I got in the car and I drove home. What was that conversation with the folks like? (laughs) Yeah, interesting. It it took a while to settle, put it that way. But it was, but it was, you know, at the end of the day, I ended up doing a business degree, which I don't think I've really used a a day of it in my life. Um, But it kept, it kept me going in academic structure. And and then I I worked in music actually, funnily enough, for a bunch of years at, at the university there, which which kind of follows on with that idea of of not wanting a, a responsible established career. Well, you look, you've got an established career. It just doesn't look like the traditional working for the man, you know, 40 years from now you get a gold watch, you know, and go live in a caravan at Soldiers yeah. Caravan at Soldiers Beach. No, it's it's, you know, you've been putting food on the table for a long time doing yeah. an unconventional thing. And, and like what you did back then is probably what most people do now, to be honest. Putting yeah, bits totally, and pieces together resemble. and put the paycheck together, you know? Yeah, it really resembles a lot more. There's a lot more freedom the kids have got these days to yeah. to explore, you know, different careers in in offbeat little um, avenues and and to not explore careers at all, you know, um, just to, to travel and find themselves a little bit before falling into something. When did you first start to see the activism and surfing kind of intersect? There was a surf world where I'd seen that growing up and reading tracks and, and seeing that photo of Ian Cohen, you know, bow riding on the front of <clears> the <throat> USS, whatever it was um, at the time. And I'd read the magazines from the late 70s. At, at that stage, it was tailing off. You still had the mad dogs like Ian who were, 
who are still there and super committed. But then also, you know, I, I, I grew up in a big musical kind of melting pot, a lot of punk, but Midnight Oil were for me the were like was where it started. My f- first gig I ever saw was Midnight Oil, Atari RSL, the Diesel and Dust tour. God, hang on, oh. hang on, just one second. <laughs> oh, yeah, take to it see in. Midnight Oil at a, a a regional RSL on the Diesel and Dust tour. Mm-hmm. How old were you? I was fifteen. Fucking you, hell! You love this. I had to get my mum because these are the days of paper licenses and and. I had to get my mum to come to the to, into the gig, so we both had tickets, and she had to vouch that I was eighteen to get me in the door. They knew I wasn't in those days, but you know, it was a lot more lax than it is these uh, these days. And we got in, and, and there it was. I just ditched her and um, and went straight straight for the front, and it just burned into my psyche. You know, um, that band was already there. I'd listened to them religiously through all the early catalogue. Um, uh, but Diesel and Dust was was kind of the first one that broke fairly big, and and the first one obviously that broke you know the Indigenous story and and it was it's just a huge eye opener, um, and but Midnight also as you mentioned were were considered a surf band as well at that point, um, so I'd, I'd seen and read a lot of interviews with Peter Garrett. We've actually just interviewed Peter for the next Surfing World magazine, um, and so. For me, looking up to to someone in that world, like he was he was kind of it, for sure. Um, punk music had a lot of it. Like we listened to, you know, everything was anti-establishment at that point that we listened to. Um, and then surf, yeah, surf was still pretty wild. It didn't always take the shape of of environmental activism, but it was always pushing back at something. At that point didn't stay that way for long. It got soft after a while um, and, a, and a bit compliant, but that's what it was in the 80s, definitely. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right for a band that I remember at the time I was 13 uh, when that album came out and I remember hearing guys at school going and I went to a, like an all-boys, all-white, <laughs> Catholic boys, you know, the sons of the, the landed gentry and their lawyers and doctors. My dad was, my mum was a doctor, both of them doctors. And hearing these guys go, yeah, I've got the new Midnight Oil record, yeah. Songs about Aboriginals on it, you know, and they just didn't fucking know what to do with it, you know, because they're the, the kids of Catalonas and shit. They didn't quite know what to do about yeah. it. this fucking great song that they love dancing to, but when they listen to the lyrics, go, oh, oh, oh it's about the, the fucking land that, ass farms on <laughs> <laughs> the squatocracy yeah <laughs> and it was, it was fun like it was probably an, an easier um message for me to take in because we're like foster's obviously small town there's a fairly big indigenous population i played footy with a lot of them surf with a lot of them that conversation that midnight oil were having we weren't having that conversation though we you know we were just kids and and doing our thing um but it was kind of a, an eye-opener to to what was really going on and and you know and we spoke to Peter about this in this interview it's just you know how it challenged society at that point you know to to bring that out because no one was talking about it I remember the hearing uh, at the time again like being aware I wasn't aware of surfing really I wasn't in the water but I remember that surfers had a lot to do with the reason that we we didn't end up with a club med at Byron Bay <laughs> they were trying real hard to build one 
apparently they were trying to build one here at Malabar too. Like at the at the yeah, apparently. Really? Like that, yeah, apparently that's what I heard. But maybe maybe there might have been a, a a few quiet conversations out the back of the seals with some of the people you've also written a book about. I don't know. <laughs> uh, um, but that 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 surface was so you know instrumental in um you know because they're in the water every day. They see the coastline yeah. shifting and changing. Yeah, it, it makes sense that that you'd imagine that group of people would be the ones, you know, they're immersed in it every day. They sh- should probably care about it incremental, incrementally more than the crew who aren't. And obviously it's kind of waxed and waned a little bit in terms of energy and, you know, like, I think the last, and you, you kind of mentioned Malabar there, that I think the last great collective movement of surfers in this country was probably the mid-'90s with the ocean outfalls. You know, when the last time you really had surfers taken to the streets and just going, um, you know, this is bullshit. You know, why are we pumping sewerage out at Bondi? <laughs> why are we pumping it out at Manly? Because it's it's strange to think, man. It's like that's less than, you know, what's that, 25 years ago um, that they were pumping, you know, a secondary treated sewage out of Bondi Beach. Can you imagine trying to do that today? Yeah. And they, there was a. I remember there was a band called the Bondi Cigars. Now, if you're eating right now, uh, just understand what we're talking about. That the sewage system of the eastern part of Sydney and and probably a, a, a lot more of Sydney would pump directly out from the sewage treatment plant at North Bondi out of the cliffs, and often there's a northerly swell in certain times of the year, and that sewage would wash into the bay and into the swimming areas, and there were literally poos floating around condoms like poos floating in the surf and we were okay with that that's what you did on australia's most iconic beach you know that's why it's just it's bizarre it sounds like it it happened you know a hundred years ago but that's that was happening in the mid 90s still you know they didn't shift the outfalls off offshore till then and that was bondi that was manly you know the two most popular beaches in sydney but it was all around the country as well but i, I think that was the that was probably the last great rallying point where surfers really, you know, gave a shit and got out and, and did it. And then it, it kind of went dormant for a little while. It, it existed in little pockets around the place. But I think, you know, as surfing kind of got bigger and, and, and more mainstream and it, it kind of drifted away from that, you know, I say dangerous, but that that edge where it really, you know, had a voice and on important issues like that. And it didn't, yeah, like, man, it laid dormant for probably two decades, the best part of, so. If you ever want to know what day it's going to be like or what the weather's going to be like next Thursday, ask a surfer. They will tell you, actually, the swell's coming out of this and the wind's going to be that, and so between this and this is when I'm getting in the water. Like, no one knows weather patterns more than surfers. Over the last 20 years, there has to be, even amongst the most climate-denying people out in, the, out in the break, there must be a conversation of like, it's different to when we were kids, isn't it? Oh, yeah, 100%. You know, it's like, and you, you're, you're spot on. And that most surfers are weather nerds as well. And so they're, you know, they'll start with a swell forecast and as a corollary, they'll know what the weather's doing and then they'll keep a, <clears throat> an inner catalogue of all of that year to year as well. And they'll remember swells and they'll remember kind of how, it, how they presented and how big it was and what it did to the coast and, and the movement of the water. And, and, and most committed surfers anyway have a really good running um, 
loop of that in their head of where of the shifts in the weather and and how things are different and and kind of more or less what we see is, is all backed up by the data you know you look at it now and God, you look at water temps you know you've got record water temps off off the east coast right now and you've got east coast water that used to used to be east coast water that now goes to tasmania it goes to the east coast of tasmania and you've got kingfish in tasmania who that were never there they were n- never there and suddenly they're popping up in in you know off bishano and and places like that and it's just and it's wild it's um because this stuff happens incrementally but <laughs> it happens incrementally to the point where it you know it happens slowly and then all at once it you you, you have something that just opens your eyes and then there it is yeah we have a we're we're, we're currently in the middle of our lifetime of eating burgers, fries, and 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 thick shakes for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and the heart attack's coming. Even though we've been told by our GP every couple of months, come on, man, go for a walk, maybe maybe eat some greens. <laughs> the heart attack's coming, whether we like it or not. But we can have that. We can have the choice. We can. We can start to go for daily walks right now, or we can go. Fuck me! I'm going to have to go into hardcore triathlon mode, <laughs> yeah. or bypass surgery. Well, yeah, that's yeah. and and which is what you're seeing with things mm. like the Narrabeen Seawall, which would I'd, yep. I'd love to talk to you uh, about. You are the 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 chairman of uh, the Surfrider Foundation, um, which is dedicated to protecting the the waves. Why would people who uh, don't surf uh, care about waves, care about a surf break? Um, I don't think they'd hold any special attachment to the wave themselves. And it's funny, you look at, you know, a- any issue surfers get involved with, the commentary for non-surfers is, is fairly, you know, derogatory because they, they, there's still a feeling that surfers are just out there freeloading and and doing it, which is, <clears throat> which is far from the truth these days. Um, we're upstanding members of, of society. But the, the power of a lot of these conversations about what's happening on the coast comes from that national identity, that even if you don't live by the coast, the Australian identity attaches itself to the coast, you know, it's who we are. You just ask someone, you know, what's it mean to be Australian? You know, they go, shit, I don't know, barbecues, beach. Um, the, the beach will almost straight up, straight up come up as the, the first thing referenced. Um, but that's who we are. And that's, uh, in, in a way, there's a power in that too that we've we've kind of there's a growing sense of of that cultural cachet that as surfers you know we were easily dismissed in the past because you you know you were you're just dull bludging and whatever and that's that was the common thought in the 70s and the 80s um it's a very different cohort of people these days it's pretty much everyone um it's a very broad church but but the fact that 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 we embody that whole national identity of being by the beach and living on the beach and being part of it and being in it every day, um, it makes it really hard for politicians and developers and whoever you're up against to dismiss it um, because that's who you are. You, the last thing any of that crew want, particularly for a politician, is a couple of thousand surfers turning up in their electorate on the beach pissed off about something that they've done. And, and we've kind of realised that, you know, our eyes have kind of opened to that in the last couple of years. You've been fighting. You've been fighting some pretty uh, high-profile battles over the last uh, the last year or two. What's uh, what are some things that people might not have realised that surfers have played quite a hand in? Yeah, it's been fun, uh, funny that the big issues we've been involved in have still really struggled to get 
a lot of mainstream media um, traction, which is kind of more or less the system at work, which is is how it goes. But probably the one that really got us going was the Great Australian Bite. There was a proposal down there that stretched back to the the early 2010s to to turn the bite into a deep water oil field, and and this ticked along, and and so there was a whole group of of big oil majors sniffing around it, and, and anyone who's been down there knows is it's you know it's remote coast. Like most people from the east coast never go there. Um, it's small fishing towns. There's not a lot of people, so it's it's kind of far removed from the consciousness of the east coast. Um, people don't really have a connection to it, but. But this whole idea of it being industrialised and turned into this in, into an oil field pissed people off royally, and it pissed surfers off because the, you, the company's own oil spill modelling showed that if it fucked up, it was gonna the oil was gonna wrap around all the way up the east coast. It was gonna end up in New Zealand, um, and so that that was the trigger to get people involved. But then people got a better sense of of the value of that coast and what it represented. Yeah, they might not have been there, but they know what it represented. It represented like a wild, untouched kind of, you know, a bit of wilderness. That, and that's Australia to, to most of us. And, and this was under threat. And it was funny, we had, you know, we had hundreds of thousands of people right around the country, but particularly on the East Coast, all protest to save that area, you know, which is a couple of thousand k's away. And at the, end, at the end of the day, they did. The, the Norwegian company that was, that was planning to do it, Equinor, um, uh, took off and bailed. And it's, it's as good as saved now. Like, no one will come back. Um, but it was, a, it was a revelation for, for the, the power that we kind of collectively held as people of the coast. And, um, and here we go. And we've just tried to keep it rolling ever since. Now, I just want to preface this by saying I'm, I'm watching you right now over a over a video call you do not have a tinfoil hat on I do not have a tinfoil <laughs> hat on you mentioned earlier we didn't hear about this in the mainstream media and that's the system at work can we unpack that a little bit please sure uh well if you want to have a look at, at who owns most of the uh the outlets where people get their news where the, the bulk of people get their news most of them tend to, if you follow the breadcrumbs, uh, have some connection to the fossil fuel industry. Um, often you won't have to follow breadcrumbs at all. It's a, it's a straight line, uh, well marked. Um, but that's pretty much most of the, the, the major news outlets, the big TV stations have connections or interests, parallel interests to the fossil fuel industry. And, and then in this nexus between politics the media and the fossil fuel industry it's like it just it's a feedback loop that just goes around and around and around and it blocks out a lot of this important big stuff that we should be talking about and and energy policy and particularly fossil fuel development is the stuff that just gets buried and it's it you know it, it becomes difficult to find it is this why when you have you know, recommendations handed down, goodness, since the early 90s. But, you know, now coming out of something, for example, like COP26, absolutely no more new, no new coal, oil or gas. Like, don't do anything more. And then we go, you know what would be fucking great? Gas pipeline. You know what would be fucking awesome? Oil. Let's build another massive fucking gas terminal off a bit of coastline here, tip top, here's some money, let's build it. Yeah. Is that how shit like that happens? 
Oh, man, we are on. I, I, yeah, it's a daily struggle for me to to keep it together with all of this because it's you get you get drip fed a lot of this stuff and you just see new stuff popping up and you get an understanding of how this is allowed to perpetuate and how colossally stupid Australia is being by develop, continuing to develop it at the expense of of something that will actually work for us in 20 years' time. It's a sickness. It really is. It's like an institutionalised sickness and it's in there and it's just baked in to the system. And, you know, the, between politics and the fossil fuel industry, you know, the fossil fuel industry has its head up the arse of politics so far. You can't tell where one stops and the other starts. It's the lobbyists and it's just this this feedback loop that just allows this stuff to continue. And the the, the media, the mainstream media, by and large, plays a role in just in just burying the lead and just letting this stuff happen and distracting everyone with with day-to-day dross. And and this big conversation is, you know, it's only just properly being had now. It's being, it's, you know, we're having it independently on a, on a podcast, but, you know, man, the, you wait this issue. This is, this is the most important thing we're going to face, um, let alone the most important thing our kids and grandkids are going to face. It's wild because sometimes I almost feel, get the feeling I'm being gaslit. I feel Mm. fucking insane, you know, because on one hand, you know, I go, okay, here's some science. Science talking about how if I, you know, get this vaccination, I'm going to be a lot less sick. Um, You know, other people I know get the same vaccinations. We all get vaccinated together. They get exposed. Someone I know who isn't vaccinated gets exposed. This person goes, ah, I felt a bit of hay fever. That one says, I thought I was going to fucking die. (laughs) Like, okay, fair enough. This, we can all accept this pit's real. But how come the same facts, the same scientific process is being completely fucking ignored over here? where it comes to economics, where it comes to social policy, where it comes to real estate prices, when it comes to, you know, I, I feel I'm tearing my fucking hair out here, Sean. Yeah, that's, you know, it's a symptom of the times, the information wars. And it's, you know, it, and it presents, like obviously it's presented most notably recently in the, the whole vaccination shit fight. But with what we're looking at with the fossil fuel thing, man, it's just like barrage. You're dealing with this bullshit on a day-to-day basis. You've got You've got these huge gas companies claiming to be carbon neutral, and and they claim it because, but they don't count the the actual gas that they pull out and burn. That doesn't count, that, which is ninety percent of the the emissions. So they're not ours. They're not on our hands. That's and so we can tick carbon neutrality with a few dodgy offsets or whatever here and there, and and we're a green gas company. What the fuck is a green gas company? It's like there's no such thing. It it doesn't exist. And, and yet this, this is what you're up against, you know, and, and obviously we're fairly engaged in it. Most people aren't. And the challenge is to, to get people to actually just have a look at it um, because if, if they're only looking at the stuff on the surface, that's, they're getting the gas company messaging or the mainstream media messaging and, and that's where it's ending and, and it'll just keep going until, you know, something breaks. It, it's beggar's belief. It, that the economic impacts alone, not to mention the climate impacts, not to like, not even to talk about 
And it's full on, you know, because in the last couple of weeks, we're recording this in January. In the last few weeks, we've seen something like 90% of the potato crop in Victoria just washed out of the ground, right? Because of, you know, rainfall that no farmer's ever seen in their lifetime. It's about food security. Mm. It's about water supply. It's about the shit that, you know, we think only happens in other countries. No, fuck me. It's happening here, right? Not even that. Let's not even talk about that. It's the economic future of our country because this is going to happen whether we want it to or not. People are going to stop wanting our coal over fucking night and we'd better be ready. What are we left with, man? Like we're, you know, we're essentially a first world quarry right now um, and it's just this lack of imagination as to what what we look like in 30 years and, and the current leadership, again, is another symptom of there's no no vision for anything for down the track um, beyond the next election cycle, but no vision for what, what, what we need to be in 30 years or 50 years or and starting building towards that. It is. It's crazy. It really is. A first world quarry. Oh, my God. <laughs> there's, there's the man that can write a headline for it that sells magazines right there. That is, that is glorious. So I, I, I did want to talk to you today because there's people listening right now. You know, we're in an election year. We're coming up on, on an election. What, what can be done? What does activism look like now when the voices of activists are not being reflected in the, the, the nightly news or the, the, the mainstream story feeds that we get? What, what can we do as parents, as people who care about you know what? I wouldn't mind knowing that I'm going to have food to feed my kids in 20 years. What can we do? Um, you're right. This is an, an important election. This is like a generational one. There's a real sense of that right now. Um, and that's it. It's, man, it's just value the vote. That's, we've learned that. We learned that straight away when we were dealing with the bite because the bite issue blew up right in the middle of, right before the 2019 election. And we pushed hard to get that into in front of both majors and to get them to take a position on it because anything to do with a, a large fossil fuel development or whatever, uh, particularly back then, they were like, ooh, hang on, they'd hit, hit reverse and they, want, they were nowhere near it. They wouldn't take a position. Um, and we, we pushed and we pushed and we pushed and we found out, we didn't find out till six months later till Shorten lost the unlosable election that, that actually... A few a week before the election, he was toying with the idea of of putting the bite as a world heritage area onto onto his election platform, um, and they didn't do it in the end. Uh, but that was an eye opener to us, to us that it had got that close to to, and th- that was us. We'd done that, you know. That was the movement that had done that. We went, holy shit, you know that that pushed it onto the national stage, and we realised that it's a matter of timing and it's a matter of of where, where you talk about this stuff geographically in terms of electorates and where you have these conversations because um, some, due to their marginal nature, are more important to politicians than others and and you just be a little strategic about the way you, you, you do it um, because it is your one chance. We've learned that they won't listen <laughs> otherwise. They just won't unless their asses are on the line themselves. So it's it's talking with other people in your community, that's where it starts, I guess, is talking to people in your electorate and talking to your MPs. 100%. That's, these were all, the Bight was a national campaign, but it all came out of these tiny little fishing towns down in the Bight and turned into conversations like here in Torquay. Torquay was, at that 
2019 election was a, was the most marginal seat, I think, if not the country in Victoria. So it was a big, like, we, and we had 5,000 people turn up. We had three paddle outs and we had, you know, three, three and 5,000 people turn up to these things. And 500 votes either way would decide the electorate. So essentially that that issue was going to flip the the thing one way or the other. And so, and we kind of looked at that and went, okay, well, going ahead, um, we probably need to think that way because that, that's your one chance and it's and it's created a whole new line of engagement. Like we ended up at Parliament House end of 2020. We got invited to walk around the joint and, and to speak to people. This was all about the PEP 11 um, gas plan off Sydney, which, you know, which that was another classic example of the mainstream media just not even discussing the whole idea. They were going to put a gas field off Sydney, between Sydney and Newcastle, and it didn't raise an eyebrow in the press anywhere for years. And it was just mind-boggling. And then, and then we got, again, we got it onto the radar. We got, we got to Parliament House. We met local MPs with, a, with electorates adjacent to it, and, and that fell over. We got rid of that a couple of months ago. It's astonishing, you're right, because the, the, the only time I heard about that was actually through, through following your work, and I, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that I'd never heard of that. Yeah. You know, I hear about coal, you know, uh, terminals, uh, you know, in, in the Kimberley or, uh, sorry, gas terminals in the Kimberley or coal terminals off the Barrier Reef, but not north of Sydney and, you know, off the coast of, of the central coast or Newcastle. I'd never heard about it. Yeah, there's a reason, you know, most, like, you know, fossil fuel extraction and mining all happens in remote areas because no one wants to see it. Um, that's the nature of it. So for them to plonk this thing off Sydney, off, off the most iconic coastline in the country, the most populous coastline in the country, it's just fucking brazen. It's like, man, someone stop these guys. Personally, sy- systemic change is the thing that has to happen. For me, like, ha- how can we interrupt the revolving door, the golden staircase or the golden escalator between sitting members of parliament and uh, fossil fuel boards or, or a- a executive positions? And like I said, this is shaping up to be a generational election here right now. Currently, you've got a very old school, rusted on way of running the country where, like I said, the, the political class and the fossil fuel lobby and they're indistinguishable and, and they, they jump from one to the other. But I think you've got a sense now with the, you know, with the importance of climate change and, and that, that idea permeating out from, from the young but also that conversation going to you know, other generations that there's another way to do it. You're seeing it like the, obviously the independent movement and the noise around that right now is huge. Um, and the, the other thing that, that really pisses me off too, to Osh, is you look at politics and no one in that place really looks like me or my crew, you know. They all be, they're all hothoused out of, out of student politics and then they work, they're political staffers and then they, and they just follow this career path. So they don't have, a bunch of them don't have real world experience uh, for, for whatever that is worth. You end up with a ministry who've got no specialised skills in their portfolio. They're not actually, you know, the health minister hasn't dealt with health. He's not a doctor. He's got no experience there. And they're just, they're professional politicians. Um, And I I think you've got a sense of that, people wanting to take that back, that that's that's a bullshit way to run run the country because then all you end up with is political conversations, which again, the climate change conversation pisses me off because... 90% 90% of it talks around the, the po- political game about it and who's doing what about it and whatever. The science 
It's like it fits into a little, little skinny bit in the margin. It's in the conversation. It's just ridiculous. But but I, I think and the young people, are, young crew are driving it, and even my you know our generation, the X's, uh, are right into it as well. Um, and you're gonna, I think you're going to sh- see a shift at this election. Um, I'm praying for it, whatever shape it takes. But the old the old way of doing stuff has got to go. It's just not going to. It's it. We can't keep doing this shit. It's it's it is going to go. I mean, since we stopped manufacturing cars in Australia, we don't get to decide what cars come to Australia. We just get the cars that, because we are a, a right-hand drive country, we get the cars that e get made for Japan or the UK. And we get they 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 they're so big these companies they go and we'll sell a few of them to Australia. We'll make them. We'll put these specs on it so they fit Australian standards. That's what we get. That's what we get to choose from. These decisions are made outside of our borders, outside of our country, yeah. and we get what we're given. That's what's going to happen yeah. with fossil fuels. It, and it'll be out of our hands. The decision will be out of our hands. And if we are not ready, if we are not prepared, we're turning into Venezuela overnight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dude, there's a, re- like, there's a reckoning coming that, you know, there's an environmental one, there's an economic one, and it's, it's all a result of the short-sightedness of what's going on right now. It's no one's no one's got a plan for down the track. And the frustrating thing for people like you and me and 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 people who look at it closely is, man, it's the opportunity of what you could be is is what's being lost. You know, fuck, you've got the this, the most beautiful corner of the world here. Um, you've got all these th- these natural assets. You've got the you know your Indigenous connection to it, all this stuff that's just not even utilised. It's not even in the conversation. It's just, it's just you know ignored. And you know, and you look at what Australia could be and go, man, it could just be like this. You know, already you know, you talk energy and the and you get that phrase that we could be the Saudi Arabia of renewable energy, and and it's actually starting to head that way. No, no thanks to the government, but the market's pushing it. But there's all this stuff that could happen. And it's just not, and it's frustrating. It, it's a, it's a real shame because it is. Uh, you not only if you're a current person who is like I'm nearly fifty, y- y- my retirement is going to look very different in the country that I live in because of the choices that I made in this election. Like in twenty years from now, when I can't work anymore, the social services that I have access to, the money that the state has to provide me healthcare, will be directly affected by you know, what our economy looks like, right? I want to protect that. People younger than me, well, because I'm, I'm old enough to have seen the weather be one thing when I grow up and it's something else now. If you're G's age, she's only ever known it like this. Mm. And she's staring down the battle. You've got teenage kids as well. She's staring down the barrel of, well, fuck, what's it going to be like? And Wolf doesn't, we haven't even had a chat to him about it yet because he's two. You know, how do you talk to your kids about it? Um... We have conversations around it. it. It's funny because it's a at that age, you know, I've got my two eldest of fourteen and sixteen, and they're um, and you know, you, you tend to be fairly self-consumed by your 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 own programs at that thing. But but they're well aware of it. And in terms of where I was at as a kid, you know, that they're light years ahead in terms of understanding how the, how the world works and and how these climate shifts work, and they know what's happening. Um, the youngest one in particular, or the middle one now, um, 14-year-old, she's engaged and, you know, she was. She takes a bigger look at the world. Um, she's a fairly sympathetic soul and and does like to 
see how all of this stuff affects other people. But it is hard to put on them this concept of 30 years' time. You know, what are we headed to some Mad Max dystopia or, you know, are we getting the leathers and the bikes out, Osh? What are we doing? Because um, it, it, maybe it's that's potentially where it, it could land if we just keep, you know, shoveling fuel on the fire. As Australians, we have to demand that our leaders can see that we're not at the top of the mountain yet. Yeah, the weather's clear where we are. We're really lucky to be in this country. But there's so much blue sky ahead and what we could be if we embrace the possibility versus don't, no, don't change anything. Why change anything? Why do you want to change it? It means it's un-Australian. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it really is, man. Someone needs to, someone with a vision needs to get a hold of this place and, and do something with it, please. But I think the system you described earlier makes people who have vision go, I'm not going near that. I don't want to be, I don't want to get into politics. No, no, it's funny that, you know, you, you look at, like I said, that those people, most of them don't represent anyone who looks like anyone in my life, you know, yeah. and probably not like anyone in your life. Um, nope. But then you look at, you know, this election coming and, and, and I probably imagine that you'd have a conversation with these guys regularly too, but Dave Pocock's running and he, like he looks like someone in my life, you know, and, and thinks like with someone, you know, that thinking ahead and wanting to build something better and, and he's running for the Senate in Canberra. And I think, you know, guys like him and a lot of the independents, they've come from different walks of life and, um, and they've, they've ended up, they're going to run more out of frustration than anything else. But it might look a bit different. I hope they all get in. It might be a bit Star Wars Bari, um, but, but it'll be way better than what we've got right now. So people may be worried, and there's people in my life who I had these conversations with, and they are they're like, nah, people who aren't from major parties can't get stuff done. What would you say? What would you say to that? What would you say to people who are a bit concerned about voting independent? All I'd say is look back to 2010, and and look what happened when you had enough independence to actually to sit in the middle of it and have the balance of power, and you looked at you know Tony Windsor and Rob Oakeshott and, and those guys and. And you look at what they got done, you know, uh, and with Julia Gillard leading it, man, that agenda, it was like a lot of the big things, like the only big things that have that have been built in Australia in the last 10 years in terms of policy uh, all happened then, you know, with independence holding the balance of power. You had the NDIS come in. You know, you've had clean energy funds. You've had all of this, this stuff that was kind of future-looking and and kind of sympathetic to the Australian population and giving a shit. A lot of that got built then, you know. A lot of it got wrecked in the years since. But but that all happened with independence holding the balance of power. And the two majors, particularly the ones in power right now, just um, have drifted so far away from a long-term vision and and just so consumed with the, the day-to-day politics of it. It just, it just drives you nuts. Uh, and they look, they're very good at throwing dead cats on the table. <laughs> they are really, really good at, at that. Um, c- case in point, you know, there was the summer where no one could go on holiday and everyone was getting sick and the pandemic hits and there was no rat test because the when they got told to order rat tests, they didn't order rat tests and it was just about to fucking go crazy. Oh, shit, look, this tennis star's done something. And then the 10 days we spent yeah. focused on a tennis player, not on the fact that there's higher infection rates and there's no testing and the, there's empty st- supermarket shelves. Like, it's important that we watch for when the politicians are, are dangling the keys in front of the toddler 
Oh, look at this. Look at this. Look at this. Isn't this? Whoa, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Because there's some other shit going on. It's a game, man. That's what it is. It's a it's a game. And and they play it and to the detriment of the, the national interest and the, the detriment of the future and um, and it kind of self-consumes. It just goes around and the media cycle feeds off it and until you stand back from it and like you said, just see it for what it is. Um, nothing will ever get done. It's it's just ridiculous. We're just chatting with Sean Doherty today. There is a full video version of this episode, which you can catch at patreon.com slash osher. You'll also find ad-free versions of the show. And thanks to the team at Patreon who, because a couple of people were saying, I can't find you there. And I've, I had been flagged as not safe for work content. So I don't actually remember getting my wang out for money on Patreon. I don't think I ever did it, but for somehow I got tagged as not safe for work. Anyway, they fixed that, so now you can search for me there. But it's super easy. Just go to patreon.com slash osha. We really appreciate your support because if this show does bring you any value, like, for example, if you were to see me out and about, I was trying to find change to put in a parking meter, you said, i got you, buddy, don't worry. And you tapped your card for the couple of bucks it had cost to park for an hour, and you would do that as a way to say thank you for this show. Please consider supporting the team that brings you this show every week. There's about five of us, and um, it's not free to make, but it's free to listen to. So uh, for those of you who are not on Patreon, who are yet to experience the ad-free glory of this show, who are yet to experience it in its full video majesty, here's some ads, and then we'll be back with Sean in just a moment. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. There was a suburb I lived in once that they wouldn't take out my yellow bin if I had my yellow bin is only for paper and plastic. And if I had any paper in there, the garbos would look at it and go, nah. And they would deny it that week. And I'm getting in trouble for not sorting out my recycling. Yet, you know, similar systems of government, not local but national, are like, you, we're, we're going to leave your yellow bin on the curb because you didn't do a good job. Yet, we're going to dig up 40 squillion gigatons <laughs> of, of CO2 and that's just fucking fine. Like, there's personal responsibility yeah. and then there's – what we must demand, uh, big upstream solutions. And we have this chance now. In this yeah. election, we have this chance. What kind of policies would, would I mean, we, we could look for everywhere. We could look at Indigenous issues. We could look at, like, when it comes to what we've been speaking about, coastal protection, when it comes to what we're speaking about, you know, the economic impact of climate change, what policies should we look for in the people that we might be voting for? Uh, well, for mine personally, my little sphere of influence you know, like it, for me, it starts with energy policy because that, that'll drive it. And like you said, man, this is the conundrum with, with climate change because we get told by the fossil fuel companies that it's us burning it and using it 
that drives the problem. Whereas, <laughs> whereas if you actually just flipped it the other way and said, if you guys didn't dig it out and you gave room for all this other stuff, this cleaner stuff to take hold, we would get to that result at the end of the day. Um, but I, like, I feel very strongly about energy policy. I just, I look at it and it's an absolute basket case because um, I think the big stuff needs to shift. And that's what we, we work that out with our activism because a lot of it's community activism, but we, like, we were super ambitious and we just said, right, like to take down an oil field that, that might develop into an oil field with 20 wells that will run for 60 years, if you can stop the first one of those, man, you've stopped 20 of them and you've stopped however many billions of tonnes of shit that's going to go into the air over decades. And it's a use of, you know, you've only got so much bandwidth and so much of yourself to give to you've got to choose selectively as to where you put your energy. And that's what we, we thought for Surfrider and all our coastal collective crew, that, that's actually probably a pretty good use of it because if you can take down this, you know, the oil field in the bite and then you can take down PEP 11, man, you've stopped a whole heap of shit um, from going ahead. Like that's quite powerful. But for me, yeah, in terms of what I'm looking at um, at the election, I'll, I'll look really closely at that. Um, climate, just any anything, I'll start with climate and then I'll, I'll kind of work my way down the, the menu from there. Because I, I guess depending on where you live, I completely agree. Energy policy is is where we have to begin because that is going to be, we are currently an energy producing nation. We sell energy. Why should we not continue to do so? We have the technology. We can rebuild it. We can do it. The technology is not waiting to be invented. It's here today. We can do it. Yeah. Man, um, we're currently going backwards. The thing is we're going backwards relatively in terms of yeah. climate. There's more pollution going into the air. We've got to stop going backwards and then, before we actually nudge forwards yeah. um, and that that's the position we're in right now. But also depending on where you live, uh, coastal policy may be, may be something that it's, 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 it's in your mind. Um, for example, there are some places in the country that, and it's heartbreaking to even say these words, but there are some places in the country that have gone, we have accepted that managed retreat will be what we'll need to do. Yeah. And then there are other places who are like, we're going to make our residents pay for a seawall, um, which is uh, what you're seeing in, in Sydney here. Uh, we've all seen the famous pictures of a swimming pool falling off a cliff in Collaroy. But what is it, 1.3 kilometres or 1.7 kilometres? This yep. seven-metre-high seawall that's going up at, at Narrabeen that was paid for, I think, by 80% by the residents, I think. Yep. Yeah. It's I know, it's crazy, man, because it's like, when when you've got suddenly you've got fifty collaroys, what are you going to do? You, you can you out, you can't outbuild the tide. Um, you got to stop the problem at the root at the root of it. You know um, this is just ludicrous. What they're doing right now, just I just sit there and shake my head on a lot of levels. Um, but yeah, man, it's I look at it. You've got to stop the problem first before you know, like this whole idea of mitigation and and just adapting to it. Is I'm not, I'm not fucking cool with that at all. <laughs> I'm very. <laughs> I, I with am that. aligned. <laughs> there will be have to be some mitigation. There we have to be some adapting because even if we stop tomorrow, we'll still warm uh, for a, you know a couple of decades, which is the, the absolute tragedy of it all. Um, but to to actually be an acceptance that a, a massive part of the Australian dream is to own a home yeah. and many many homes in Australia, a couple of hundred thousand homes in Australia. 
which might be your retirement fund. If you go, right, I'll live here, hope the property goes up, and then in 20 years or 30 years when I retire, I'll sell it and that'll be enough to provide for me and my family when I can no longer work. Well, that's not going to happen if six times a year um, your house is underwater. <laughs> You're not going to get that value. So who's looking forward? Who's thinking of how to solve that problem? It's a hard problem. It's a very tricky problem. But that problem is a problem that will need to be solved. So who's looking forward for that? Yeah. You know? It's, you know, and again, it's just classic short-termism at the moment, putting the wall up because that's, you know, like in the, the houses should never have been built there in the first place 100 years ago. You got them there now. You, you probably had an opportunity to, to buy them outright and just let the dune, sand dune be the dune and do what it does and protect the beach. Um, but that's gone and then you just, you're in this rat's nest now of private home ownership against public, you know, the, the public asset in the beach and, and the, the private homeowners are winning. It's, it's just, it's crazy. Of all the surfers, because the thing is when you put a seawall uh, up against sand, sand is an amorphous blob, it moves in and out. There's a surf break near here called Mackenzie's. It has a beach maybe once every two years. All right, that's just the movement of the water and the tides over the seasons. Sand comes and goes, beaches change shape. And that sand goes back quite away from the beach. The, 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 the effect of the beach changing goes back quite away from the beach. But when you put a seawall up against it, the, the, the movement of the sand is interrupted. Of all the surfers to take on, to take on the fucking North Narrabeen board riders? <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> you see, those, those guys got a pirate flag. That's what, they, that's what they surf under. It's a pirate flag. And they're the gnarliest of the gnarly, those guys. They sure um, are. They've got, they got a big rep. So they're, they're pretty keen to take them on. But there you go. Look, you know, City Hall's built a section of that wall. It's a colossal disaster already. The first swell that hit it gouged out the whole beach in front of it. Uh, a total mess. And they've still got a, a kilometre of it to build. So, yeah, yeah, that's the precedent, that one there. And there's a whole heap of other beaches up the coast of Womberall, you know, Belongel at Byron, Old Bar, um, up near where I grew up. There's beaches everywhere. This is, like you said, man, what if, like, when there's 50 Collaroys, what are you, you going to do? The, the, the cost of 50, 100, 150, however many it takes to, what, protect a road, protect a railway, to protect a sewerage treatment plant, the cost of building these walls would dwarf the cost of doing something about it. Yeah, oh, totally. It's, you know, like you'd look at the long-term cost because now that with this wall of Colorado, they're going, well, the beach, you'll lose the beach in front of it. That's kind of a given. Um, so the only way you have a beach there is you've got to, you've got to pump sand from out at sea in there ongoing in perpetuity to keep a beach there, to a, to a beach that's been there for, for millions of years. Um, and it, it, it moves around and, and we just haven't accepted that. You know, we just said, well, this is the beach here. We're going to, this, where this wall is, that's where it is. That's the beach. Um, you know, we'll put houses here and it's just, you know, it's just man doing his thing, Osh. It's mind boggling that's happening. Yeah. But it is, as you mentioned, it is the test case. And it is one thing for us all to have a, have a look at. We've been speaking about some pretty grim shit today. <laughs> we've been speaking, we've been talking, we've been shining some light. How do you, especially you've got a you've got a really little little one. How do you get up in the morning and still see still see some joy? How do you get up in the morning and still go, well, it's gonna be all right? Uh, you've got no choice really. You know, that you 
you've got to just remain hopeful and your kids are always there running around, you're causing chaos and I love that. Um, for me, the connection to being somewhere natural is that kind of reinvigorates it for me amongst all the bullshit. You know, I, I allow myself to, to have way too many dark bits of information and things spinning around in there at all hours of the day. Um, you need a head clearer. Um, surfing here obviously is good because water temp's nice and cold, so that's instant head clearer. But it's just that immersion in the natural world. If the kids are involved in that, even better. Um, that grounds grounds me, keeps you on track, and and from there, mate, it's um, you know then it's back to to fighting the good fight from that point. You get up and do it again the next day. Yeah, what choice you got? <laughs> Mate, I'm so grateful that I could get you on the show. I'm so grateful to have this conversation. It's a conversation that, the kind of conversation that I, I personally feel needs to be had more widely. Because um, I don't think we've, we haven't speak, spoken in hyperbole. I don't think we're talking out of our asses. We're reading, you know, I, I, I have a high school education, <laughs> but I read the same economic reports that I'm sure you do. And I can go, oh yeah, well, if we don't do this, this happens. But if we do that, that happens. Wow. Why don't we do that? What do you mean we're not doing that? What? Like, yeah. I get it. Yeah. And I'm not alone. You know, so this uh, this ex- kind of exclusionary way of like, oh, this is not, and I let the big boys talk now, mate. That's got to stop. We're all involved in this. And we all have the ability to conceive of and to understand the impact of this and understand our power over it. And the work you're doing with Surfrider and the work you're doing around coastal protection is really inspiring, man, because it's like, well, no, as you mentioned, 500 people paddling out going, no, we're not going to stand for this, will change an election and change a a result. 500 people is not a lot of people. That's pretty amazing. No, true, mate. It has been an eye-opener, Osh, seriously, the last few years just to see, see how it works and... And mate, we're just like we're just a group of ratbags that you know we're not really kind of that planned out, and we just we just get up and we think that's a good idea and we go for it, and and it's it's you know it's had some modest wins, um, but if you had more crew doing more stuff in more walks of life, um, add all that together, then hey, then you got something. Does being active and actually doing something does it make the I guess the fear or the dread? Uh, feel a little less shit that day oh for sure yeah totally like I, I see it with with my social media man that's like i can just lose myself into that thing for way too long um but if i find if i get out and actually you know put something together or work on a, a campaign or you know physically put it together it's it does alleviate the the noise and and cuts it down and it just um yeah, it, it, it's always it's always a balance. It's a fine line to tread, but yeah, man, ac- action's always the cure for depression. So, yeah, climate action is the is the cure for climate anxiety. Absolutely, without a doubt. <laughs> without a doubt. You're the best, mate. Thanks for making time to do this today. I really appreciate it. No, nah, great to see you again, mate. That was Sean Doherty. You can find him on Instagram, Seano eight eight eight. And you can follow his work, his longer writing at surfingworld.com.au. Thank you so much for coming. Thanks for being a part of the show. I'll catch you on Wednesday for a slightly shorter version of the show as we look through the back catalogue. If you like 
the sound of this, you'll love the look of it. There's full video episodes, which are coming out weekly on Patreon. There are also ad-free episodes that you can get on Patreon, patreon.com slash Osho. That's a great way to support the show. But if this show brought you any value at all, just tell someone, share this episode with somebody, share it with someone who's like, ah, bloody lefty grannies, blah, blah, blah. Just like send it to them and go, this is Sean. He's a surfer just like you. And um, here's what he has to say. And it, it, you never know. It could change someone's mind. Big love to the Facebook group. Thank you so much for all the... Uh, I just love seeing people support each other there. It's beautiful. You can also find me on Instagram, Osher Ginsburg on Instagram. I'll see you in a couple of days. Thanks to everyone that made the show with me today. Andy Ma, who produced the show, both audio and video. Toehider on the music. Bruce Steele on research and production support. And, of course, the executive producer of everything. The woman that, you know, makes it all happen on time. Rachel Barrett, without you, uh, I'm just a man sitting alone in an office talking into a microphone with nobody listening. Have a great week. See you in a couple of days. Until we speak then, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.